Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week two authors of an excellent new book called Fault Lines in the Constitution, The Framers, Their Fights, and the Flaws That Affect Us Today by Cynthia Levinson and Sanford Levinson. Cynthia Levinson is a former teacher and educational policy consultant and researcher and the author of several books for young readers. Uh, Sanford is a professor in the law school and the Department of Government at the University of Texas and a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. The website for the book is faultlinesintheconstitution.com. Uh, Sandy Levinson and Cynthia Levinson, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank, Thank you. you, David. Glad to be here. Uh, so, whichever of you feels like taking this up first, what, what was wrong with the tens of thousands of books uh, in existence about the U.S. Constitution? Well, we should explain first that this is a book for young readers, and there are, in fact, for adults, books that are critical of the Constitution, but there are no other books, certainly that we're aware of, for young readers that um, encourage them to analyze the Constitution, to look at the repercussions of the framers' fights. Many kids know that there were debates and compromises made during the Constitutional Convention in 1787, but they may not be aware that there have been ramifications of those compromises that carry on today. So you're suggesting questioning the perfection of the Holy Founding Fathers? It sounds sacrilegious. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Uh, I I think that's absolutely right. Um, I'd just like to elaborate briefly what Cynthia said I think one of the subtexts of the book has to do with the quality of civic education, which is getting increasing attention. Um, That is, to what extent are kids in school, or for the matter, outside of school, really learning what they need to about the basics of American government? Sandy's right about that. I'll just interject just very briefly. Sandy's absolutely right about that. And, of course, I I said that many kids are aware of compromises, but they're probably not. Because I I think to the extent that social studies or civics and the like bring up the Constitution, they're likely to bring up what are often thought to be, rightly or wrongly, the most interesting parts and the parts that are easiest for any teacher to revoke a discussion about, which is the rights clauses of the Constitution, the First Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, you know, the other provisions of the Bill of Rights. And our book, although it mentions a couple of times rights, really focuses on structures. Bicameralism, presidential veto. Uh, the length of the presidential term, the difficulty in getting rid of a president. And either those really aren't taught much at all anymore, or I think most kids and probably a lot of teachers themselves think they're boring and dull. Uh, You kind of try to get through them as quickly as possible. You just memorize that there are two houses of Congress, that it takes two-thirds of the vote, 
in each House of Congress to override a presidential veto. But the teachers probably never stopped to say, well, should it be this difficult to override a presidential veto? Do we really have only a bicameral system, or do we have, in effect, a tricameral system? And is this one of the things that makes it nearly impossible for legislation to get through the entire process? Because not only do you need to capture both houses of Congress, which we've learned is very hard to do, even when the Republican Party notionally controls Congress, they can't pass legislation. When the Democrats notionally controlled Congress between 2009-2011, it was inordinately difficult to pass legislation. And then even if you can get through it, there's always the possibility of presidential veto. I think these things are at least as interesting and at least as worth arguing about as hate speech in the First Amendment. Well, I guarantee you that most teachers do not make it a live current events issue questioning what could be done better today, and most teachers do not do as this book does and point out what uh, not just individual U.S. states have done potentially better, but what other countries, the other 96% of humanity has in some cases found uh, to be an innovation. I'm so glad that you bring that up because, I mean, your initial question is, you know, why is our book different from all other books? <laughs> and one is, as Cynthia pointed out, that it's really directed at a teenage audience, though my hope is that the parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles will also pick it up and get hooked on it. But the other way that it's really distinctively different is the comparative element that you make. And it's not only that there are allusions to other constitutions around the world, but also very, very importantly to the other 50 constitutions within the United States, which are really interesting. And in many ways, they're often very different from the U.S. Constitution. And one of our fondest aims is that in classrooms or you know, around the dinner table, wherever, people would start saying, well, you know, the California Constitution is really different from the U.S. Constitution. The Maine Constitution is different from the U.S. Constitution. Which is better? Yeah. And as long as we're tossing in reasons for how this book is different, um, as you pointed out, um, we do make it relevant today. Every chapter, there's, you know, a chapter per fault line. Every chapter opens with a story. Many of them are current. They're like current events today. And I suspect that most other books on the Constitution don't give it a grade, which we do. <laughs> and spoiler alert to your listeners, we do not give it an A. And, and how, you know, we generally hear about the U.S. Constitution being the oldest Constitution, as if that were purely uh, a good thing. But how does the U.S. Constitution compare to others around the world and around the country in age and in the degree to which it's been amended and in the ease of, of amendability? Well, again, it's a terrific question. Um, one of the things you discover if you look at the American state is that American state constitutions are far easier to amend than the U.S. Constitution. A lot of people think that's a bug, 
I actually think that's a feature because it really is much easier to update constitutions, partly, and this goes back actually to your opening comment, partly because people don't really venerate or worship their state constitutions. They view them as instruments to achieve goals. This also means that the typical state in the United States has had just short of three constitutions. A couple have had 10 or 11 constitutions, um, but you know some major states have revised their constitutions and really replaced an older constitution with a newer constitution. Um, you know, in my lifetime, uh, Michigan in 1963, uh, Illinois in 1972, um, and so the U.S. Constitution is not only older, but we have this sense that it really shouldn't be subject to serious critique. Also, there's one other thing. People often talk about the U.S. Constitution as the oldest national constitution of the world that has lasted 230 years, etc. What they do is to leave out the fact that we killed 750,000 people between 1861 and 1865, and there's good reason to say that the first constitution of the Articles of Confederation, that lasted six years. The second constitution, you could argue, was 1789 to 1861, then we killed lots and lots of people. The third constitution certainly looks a lot like the 1789 constitution, no doubt about that, but it also included the so-called Reconstruction Amendments that really did, in many ways, change it. So, I mean, this comes back to the way we teach American history. Um, When I went to college, and I think this was a very common experience, even if you took a year-long course in American history, you kind of skipped the Civil War. And, you know, that was an embarrassing thing to talk about. And as if by magic, the 14th Amendment arrived. But you had no idea, frankly, why it arrived and what the genuine consequences were. So from that perspective, it may be that the United States Constitution in action that we really live under is not really 230 years old, but we like to pretend that it is. And getting back to the age, regardless of how old it is, and we did just celebrate last Sunday the 230th anniversary um, of the Constitution, it's not necessarily a good thing um, that it's so old. Um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, uh, five years ago when she was in Egypt, made very um, praiseworthy comments about um, other constitutions. Um, And she was criticized for that very strongly. Um, But as you say, we do compare the U.S. Constitution with others, and the one that she praised, South Africa, um, is newer than ours. At 1994. Right. So there are advantages in updating at least the Constitution. It's frankly obsolete in some ways. Uh, But Thomas Jefferson said in 1816 that we really shouldn't worship the Constitution as if it were, um, you know, the the Ark and the the Covenant, uh, Covenant and the Ark, but 
you know, we should recognize that it's like a suit of clothes. And if people grow or, you know, they're going to need to buy a new suit. And I wouldn't go so far as to endorse Jefferson's view that we need a revolution every 19 years. But part of the Jeffersonian spirit is the necessity always to engage in analysis, review what the Federalist in the very first essay in the Federalist called reflection and choice. And so what I'd like to think as the major thrust of our book is that it invites kids to engage in reflection and choice about the adequacy of the U.S. Constitution, because after all, the people we call kids, the teenagers, are going to be voters if they wish to be within four or five years. And one of the really ominous realities of American politics is the relatively low turnout rate of kids, the degree to which they feel alienated from politics. Um, And, you know, kind of the last thing in the world we're trying to do is to be cheerleaders for the American political system. But we are trying to tell kids that they are citizens and they live with the consequences of this constitutional system. We're speaking with Cynthia Levinson and Sanford Levinson, and the book is Fault Lines in the Constitution, The Framers, Their Fights, and the Flaws That Affect Us Today. Check out faultlinesintheconstitution.com. So we've touched on the difficulty of passing laws through two houses and a president and the difficulty of amending the Constitution. What are a few of the other points that you think are worthy of, of reconsideration? Well, I'm sure many people are aware of the problems with the Electoral College, um, and uh, we have quite an extensive uh, chapter on that. Um, the Electoral College came about, each chapter, of course, also includes um, information, um, quite lively information. We think about how the framers, the delegates of the Constitutional Convention, came up with the various aspects of the Constitution that they did. And the Electoral College really didn't have much going for it, except that it was different from everything else they had considered um, in terms of how to elect the president. They debated for, they were in Philadelphia for about three and a half months, and they debated for about three of those months, coming up with 60 different um, ways to pick a president. And finally, somebody strolled in, one of the delegates who had been gone most of the summer, and said, hey, this isn't working, how about this idea, and they sat down and wrote it up, and 10 days before the Constitution was signed, they more or less scrolled out some details for the Electoral College. And and we give many examples, of course, of uh, that particular fault line. Go ahead. You know, another fault line, certainly for many of us today, not for every American, but certainly for probably the roughly 60% of the American public, that is either opposed to or terrified by the Trump presidency, um, we really don't have a way of firing a president. We have impeachment, which clearly doesn't work for a variety of reasons. We also have the 25th Amendment, which we talk about, and has never been exercised. But what we don't have is 
the ability, say, of Congress simply to declare no confidence in a president, say, by a two-thirds vote, and fire the president, or we don't have what, say, Wisconsin and California have in their constitutions, which is the possibility of a recall election. I think that if we had that in the U.S. Constitution, our current politics would be very different. Instead, there's this feeling that we're just stuck with Donald Trump for four years unless we can show that he's a crook for impeachment purposes or by some miracle his cabinet would declare him basically mentally so mentally unstable that he's unfit to serve. And I'll give one more example of a fault line, which I'm sure people are aware of, but may not have, as Sandy says, connect the dots back to the Constitution. Um, People are certainly aware of the problems of, as he says, gerrymandering. Many people say gerrymandering. (laughs) Um, The reason for that phenomenon, well, there are several reasons for that, but one of them is that we don't have a nationwide, a national system for conducting federal elections. The framers basically gave up. They decided, and many people today point out we don't have a democratic, with a little d, we don't have a democratic government, we have a federal government, which is true. One of the aspects of that is that the framers gave up. They decided they were not, never going to be able to come to agreement on exactly how the election of the president should take place, even with the Electoral College. Um, and so states decide, um, state by state, how to run their elections. They decide who gets to vote, when the elections you know, over what time span the election will take place, um, the identification of voters. Yeah, how, how to draw their boundary lines, yep. Cynthia mentions. Right, related to gerrymandering, how, how states draw their boundary lines for their Congress people. Um, so it, it, should not, it should not depend on what state you live in, whether or not you have the right to vote for yeah. your congressperson or for the president. But that's the situation that we have. Yeah, let, also, let me offer one final example, because you know, some of the fault lines really are pretty glaringly obvious, like the Electoral College. One of the things we discuss at some length, I suspect most people don't think about, but it's one of those deep fault lines, like the San Andreas Fault, that, you know, if the plates shift, could really be catastrophic. That's the issue of so-called continuity in government. What if Flight 93 had in fact crashed into the Capitol and killed or disabled hundreds of representatives or dozens of senators? This is on September 11th, 2001. It turns out that thanks to the Constitution, it would be basically impossible to reconstitute the House of Representatives in any acceptable period of time. And the paradox is that if senators are disabled rather than killed, it would be impossible to reconstitute the Senate. Now, as a matter of fact, the conservative American Enterprise Institute and the liberal Brookings Institution put together a blue-chip panel really addressing this issue. They came up with a proposed constitutional amendment, but nothing has happened. You know, it's now 16 years since September 11th, and the continuity in government problem remains a deep fault line 
that, I dare say not more than one in a thousand people has ever really thought about, but it really could be catastrophic. And there is a proposal, you know, on the table. In fact, Congress even held hearings about it, but nothing has happened. Yeah. Let, let me suggest one more that I think currently is catastrophic, uh, just to get your take on it, um, because it uh, kind of surprised me that it wasn't in the book, uh, and that is the incredible corruption of the electoral system by money. Uh, because when I look at this problem uh, that you highlight of, of gridlock, of inability to pass laws, and I think of the complaints I hear that, you know, if, if the war on poverty were a real war, Congress would have put trillions of dollars into it. It. If if Mother Nature were a bank, Congress would have long since bailed it out. You know, it, it seems to me that when the oligarchs that have complete control over the Congress through financial corruption uh, want something done, gridlock is nowhere in sight. Uh, it's when the public wants something done that the oligarchs do not uh, that you have this problem of gridlock. Uh, and so I look at uh, you know, impeachment, which is just a majority vote in the House, not the two-thirds you're proposing, uh, the, the problem seems to me to be financial corruption and party power and party financial power so that you have one party that's behind Trump and the other party that wants him around even more so that they can campaign as not being him <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than campaigning on something substantive. So, I mean, how, how do you... How do you look at a completely corrupted system and not notice it? The... Well, you know, I really don't disagree with you at all. The reason it's not in the book is that I would argue that the really terrible reality that you've very well described is not hardwired into the Constitution. I mean, take Citizens United, the 2010 decision that changed the way we do campaign finance, or take what I regard as the single worst decision of the 20th century, Buckley versus Leo in 1976, those could be changed if, you know, if our people won a presidential election and the Senate, and you replaced injustices, you know. Had Hillary Clinton won and Merrick Garland got into the Supreme Court or some other uh, candidate got into the Supreme Court, I think it's quite likely that Citizens United would have been overruled. And that, that would not, in fact, be a magic wand that would solve the problem you've talked about. But you wouldn't be hitting your head against the hardwired Constitution in the way that is presented with regard to the issues that we do focus on, which aren't subject, frankly, to litigation. Clever lawyers can't get around the fact that Wyoming and California have the same number of senators. It's outrageous, it's indefensible, but there it is in the Constitution and nothing can be done about it unless we really engage in significant basic yeah. constitutional 
constitutional revision. But I don't see gerrymandering in the Constitution. I don't see filibustering in the Constitution. I don't see most of these problems actually written into the Constitution. They're just things that might be fixed through amending the Constitution. Well, they are artifacts of the Constitution and the decisions <coughs> that um, the framers made. I mean, we certainly agree in substance with what you're saying, um, but uh, I do agree with Sandy that um, the role of money in politics has to do with Supreme Court decisions. So I suppose you could say, well, the framers established the judicial branch, you know, a federal judiciary, and so therefore um, money is a part of politics. I think that's too far of a stretch, frankly. You no, but your point is, is fair, that the filibuster which we do yeah. talk about, and we, we didn't argue among ourselves, we discussed among ourselves really for months yeah. whether or not to talk about the filibuster. You're absolutely right if you suggest that the Constitution doesn't require the filibuster. And there are even a few lawyers who say that the, that the filibuster is unconstitutional. The reason the filibuster is in our book is because the Constitution does explicitly authorize each House of Congress to establish its own rules. So, Which is generally a good thing. So, very I mean, it had, so the argument for the, fil, for the constitutionality of the filibuster is that, you know, just read the Constitution and you discover that the Senate can establish its own rules, and one of the rules they've established is the need for a supermajority to cut off debate and bring anything to the House. But your point is fair. I don't want to say that if we weren't kind of authorized to write a longer book, and quite frankly, the book is longer than our publisher initially expected, um, you know, we could have gone to 400 pages. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, really addressed, I think, some of the issues you're talking about. But what we picked were those issues that seemed most, most, either most directly connected with the Constitution, yeah. as with bicameralism and equal voting power in the Senate, or where fundamental constitutional reform, and maybe even a new constitutional convention, would be necessary in order to alleviate the problem. Uh, before we get on to the possibility of a convention... Um, <laughs> one minute left I'm in which to get on to anything, by the way. I'm sorry? We have one minute left in which to get on to anything you want to get on to. Okay. Well, one other possible fault line people have brought up with us is presidential pardons, which we did not talk about. However, we are likely at some point to blog about it. We keep the book updated. It is so timely that we write blogs every two weeks showing the ongoing continuation of the relevance of the Constitution in today's lives, which people may not be aware of. And the blog is at www.faultlinesintheconstitution.com. Yeah. Our most recent blog, and I'm glad to say we did mention this in the book, is about Puerto Rico and the fact that Puerto Rico is merely a territory which means that Puerto Ricans have no representation in the House or the Senate. They can't vote for the president. And I suspect this has something to do with why Congress quickly passed aid bills for Texas and Florida and seems quite hesitant 
to respond to the three and a half million fellow Americans who are suffering even as we speak, and in some ways this is linked the Constitution. Yes, indeed. And it is a very timely, uh, it's a book that makes the Constitution very timely and, and stimulates debate. I highly recommend it. The book is Fault Lines in the Constitution, The Framers, Their Fights, and the Flaws that Affect Us Today. Uh, Cynthia Levinson and Sanford Levinson, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. Thank we you. appreciate it very much. Bye-bye. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.